This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today's guest, please welcome great man Alexander. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. In the year of our Lord, 1929, a little boy was born. They called him Stuart. The little boy waxed strong and he grew and prospered and he acquired much wisdom and knowledge so that today it's altogether fitting and proper that he is acknowledged as one of the most prolific and successful composer, arranger, conductor in the country. In the city? I don't know. That's that's an old joke. I first met Stu uh, back in 1962. I think there were 48 states at the time. We were both uh, working for the same boss at good old Screen Gems. Hard to believe, Stu, that that was 45 years ago. However, you have found the secret to perpetual middle age. (laughs) Me, I've recently retired. I retired undefeated, I might add. And I'm convinced that uh, my longevity and seeming good health are explained by an obvious fact. I never touched a cigarette, a drink, or a girl until I was almost ten and a half years old. <laughs> but, but I digress. <clears throat> Stu, I'm sorry we don't have a real big crowd, but we got a wonderful crowd of people, of talented people. Well, one of our vice presidents, Dwayne Tatro, didn't make it today because he was seeing his doctor. Alan Ferguson didn't, didn't make it today because he lives way out in Westlake. And uh, Marvin Hamlisch didn't come today because he didn't want to. Uh, But as as our dear friend Steve Allen used to say, all seriousness aside, there's there's no retiring for Stu Phillips. He's still busy and continually exploring uh, new musical frontiers. So it's really my extreme pleasure to introduce to you a gentleman of the old school, a bon vivant, a raconteur, a fair golfer, and as the rockers and rappers say, I don't know what it means, but they always say, let's give it up for Stu Phillips. Okay, I'm up here. I thought it was tough when I conducted the L.A. Phil. This is worse. have to talk to these people who actually are older than I am and have done more than I have, and they're the greatest around. Uh, so this is a little hard for me right this minute. Anyway, thanks, John, and thanks to Dwayne. I know he's absent, but he was the one who actually called me to do this. And uh, I know, Ray, you're one of the big mockers here, so thank you, and thanks, Cher and Van. And uh, I'm going to get on talking about my career. Dwayne said, don't talk about music, don't talk about anything, talk about things that happened to you in the business. And uh, in case some of you aren't aware, 
Uh, I was a record executive for a while. I was a cocktail pianist at the Garden of Allah, uh, playing for a dollar tips and a vodka. Uh, I was also an arranger for most of my life, and still am. Actually, that's the one thing I'm still doing. And then, of course, I was a composer. So it's a varied career, and um, I can tell you that it was exciting. Uh, I want to start with um, a long time ago. Uh, I was a young boy, and I decided that I was coming to California to make my fortune. I was going to be somebody. And I got here and didn't know a soul except Sammy Fain. Some of you may know who he is, very famous songwriter. He was a very dear friend of the family and uh, very close. And uh, he was out here, and my parents called him and said, you've got to do something for our son. He's out there all alone. And so Sammy, who was not prone for those who know him or knew him. I know Vic, you had to know him. He was not prone to doing a lot of things, favors for people, Sammy. He was his own person, did his own thing. Uh, so he got bugged enough that he finally said, okay. And he took me to Warner Brothers. On this lovely day, he picked me up in his chartreuse Ford convertible with the top down. And every time we came to a light, Sammy would stop and put his face up to get a suntan. And we drove to Warner's, and he introduced me to Ray Heindorf. Now, at that time of my life, I had had three professional jobs. I had copied one night on the Milton Berle show as a copyist. I had done a record for uh, two arrangements for Rialto Records. Uh, the name of the song was You Talked Me Into It, You Twisted My Arm. I don't know how I got that job. And I had a third job when I was at Eastman School of Music. I did some arrangements for the Rochester Gas and Electric Choir. And that was the extent of my professional work. Uh, and I met Mr. Hindoff, and he said, what have you done? And I told him, and he, and he said, well, what is you, you want? And I said, well, I'd like to work in the studios as a ranger, or I didn't know what people did there. You know, I didn't even think of being a composer. And um, he said, well, you know, you really don't have enough experience, so you know what I'll do for you since you're a friend of Sammy's? He says, I'm going to put your name on the copyist list. And he says, if something comes around, because I know you did that, you worked on the Milton Berle show, so they wouldn't have hired you if you couldn't do that. And I said, oh, fine, wonderful. Uh, and he said, uh, that's it. And he said, would you like to see the studio? And I said, oh, yeah, great. And uh, so he had his secretary give me a tour. And Sammy said to me, okay, Stu, I got work to do. I got to go, which meant that he was going on his way to Santa Anita Racetrack to do the horses. That was, uh, that was his idea of a meeting. And uh, this lovely secretary of Ray took me around the studio, and I went in, watched some shooting, watched them uh, uh, dub a, a movie, and it got all done. She led me to the gate, and there I stood on Pass Avenue in front of Warner Brothers. I lived at that time in a little cheesy place with my <laughs> off of Wilshire Boulevard in the Fairfax area, and here I stood and said, how the hell do I get from Warner Brothers home? <laughs> So I did what every New York pe person did. I called a cab. And <laughs> having a very limited budget, uh, needless to say, even in those days, a taxi from Warner Brothers all the way down to Fairfax and Wilshire was quite an expensive trip and kind of cut into my budget. Well, here we are, and it is 55 years later, 56 years later, and Warner Brothers still hasn't called me to do a job as copyist. <laughs> so I'm waiting. I'm patient. I'll do it. One of these days. And you know, the funny thing is, of all the places I've worked in this town now since 19, this was 1950, uh, I have never ever worked at Warner Brothers. 
I've worked at Fox, Universal, I've worked at uh, MGM, I've worked at all the students, never worked at Warner's. I always wondered if if maybe Ray didn't put my name on a thing there and said, do not hire Stu Phillips. Anyway, uh, several months later, uh, since nothing was happening and I didn't get a call from uh, Warner Brothers, uh, I asked, I bothered Sammy again. I said, gee, Sammy, nothing's happening. What can you do for me? He took me to 20th Century Fox, where I met a gentleman named Lionel Newman. Now, at that time, I think Alfred was still the music director and Lionel was kind of in the music department, but with, you know, anybody named Newman had authority in those days. And, uh, Lionel gave me the same spiel that Ray Heindorf did. Well, kid, you don't, you know, do we have a young, any young people here? No, we don't. Okay. If you know Lionel Newman, which I think a lot of you do, hey, kid, you don't know shit. Uh, you haven't done anything for year, you know, in your life. He says, you don't expect me to go out here and give you some kind of work in this place, do you? You know, like, uh, <laughs> gee, guys, you know, <laughs> I just came in here, you know. Anyway, um, I, and the same thing he said to his secretary, you know what, give the kid a tour around the studio here and, uh, you know, keep in touch, kid, call me. Well, now, 1968 came around. This is 18 years later, and I worked at 20th Century Fox, and Lionel Newman had absolutely nothing to do with my getting the job. He didn't even have his name on the screen as the music supervisor, which he was at that time then. And then I worked again at 20th Century Fox for five years in the 80s, and once again, Lionel had nothing to do with that. But he became like a very close and very dear friend of mine. But uh, two different stories, two different things. But anyway, part of the thing. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. I started out in 1950 with my thing. I'm going to skip ahead to um, 1956. And I'm back in New York City, having spent two years in the Army and almost a year in Japan. And uh, I met a man named Harry Ravel. Some of you may remember his name. He was a songwriter of quite a lot of note down at MGM mostly, if I recall. And I can't remember how I met him. Probably Sammy did. And he lived in New York City on West End Avenue. And I lived on 11 Riverside Drive. And we were about eight blocks apart. Harry Ravel, uh, at that time, had uh, done some albums with Les Baxter at Capitol called Perfume Set to Music, Music uh, Out of the Moon. And they were very successful. And then Les decided he didn't need Harry Ravel writing the themes. He could do his own albums and write his own themes. And... Uh, Somehow, Harry ended up in uh, New York City and had this idea he wanted to do an album called Music from Outer Space. And I met him, as I said, I'm not quite sure I remember the circumstances. And uh, he said, gee, how would you like to do the arrangements? And oh, God, this is what I wanted all my life because my the people that I adored when I got out of high school... <laughs> don't laugh, were David Rose and Morton Gould. <laughs> These were my idols. Uh, and uh, Morton Gould I did meet, and of course I met David Rose many, many, many years later. And uh, uh, Harry, I said, gee, great, Harry, when, you know, how, when do we do this? And he said, well, there's a problem. What? He says, well, I don't have a record company interested in doing it. Now, I have to tell you, I was a big fan of those Les Baxter, Harry Ravel albums. In fact, I had only, I owned three of them in the old acetate, the breakable records and everything. I still have them. And um, so uh, I was kind of disappointing. I went home to my father and he said, well, what, what happened when you met Harry Ravel? Because they, my mother and father were being such good friends of Sammy. They were very aware of all the composers and songwriters in Hollywood and here in New York and everything. And they knew who Harry Ravel was. 
And I said, nothing. He doesn't have a deal with a record company and there's no money to make the album. So my father felt like, oh boy, that was very disappointing. So he said, how much would it cost to do this album? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, so he said, why don't you find out? So I called the union. I got the scale. Any of you guys who were old enough to remember 1956, what the union scale was? I don't know. Was it 50 bucks or $75 a session or something like that? And uh, I gave my father the information. And he said, OK, you tell Harry that I'll pay for the session. And I said, oh, gee. You know, gee, Dad, you, you, no, I want you to, this is a, your big opportunity to do what you always wanted to do, have a, a big orchestra and a chorus and write all these great arrangements. So uh, I said, okay, and I told Harry Ravel, and he said, oh, fantastic. He says, now all we need is a record company. So at that time, my father was doing, in a business where he was selling sundry things to drugstores, and part of that was selling some records, and he had met a man named Harry Meyerson at MGM Records, and he called Harry Meyerson up and, and told Harry that Harry Ravel uh, wanted to do an album like he did for Capitol Records, and he says, I'm going to pay for the whole thing. Well, what kind of, you know, you, you offer a record company a deal where you get Harry Ravel and, for nothing and you don't pay a nickel for it? So uh, Harry Meyerson said, sure, we'll put it out. And so that was my first job, really, where I got to do all these things that I always wanted to do. And uh, needless to say, or I shouldn't say needless to say, but to tell you the truth, the album came out. It was flop number one. Major bomb. Nothing happened. But about a year ago on eBay, I noticed... <laughs> A copy of the album for sale for $35. Now that album was a buck 98 when it came out. And, uh, I said, my God, there's somebody in this. And they sold it. I mean, it was auctioned off and the, and they sold the album. And I said, my God, there are actually people out there who know that album. And, uh, part of that story is that, uh, I was a little green at that time and, and I had some friends from Eastern School of Music who I, felt I wanted to hire on the date, which I did. A gentleman named Jim Buffington, I don't know if you remember him, a French horn player, one of the best there ever was. Uh, an English horn player, woodwind player named Ray Shiner. And my friend from high school, whose name was Seymour Kaufman, uh, of course, he's better known now as Cy Coleman, right? And, uh, and Cy Coleman at that time had a trio, and he was playing the Supper, supper club in the lower east side, in the east side, and I went to the club and I said, "Sai, I'm doing a an album, and I I've written uh, 12 arrangements, and about six of them feature piano. I mean, really feature it like concerto style." And I said, "I'd love to have you play on the date." And so I said, well, I'd love to play the date, but I don't get done playing here till 2.30 in the morning. He says, what time is your session? So I said, 9 o'clock. He says, well, come on, give me a break. I can't, you know, do that. I said, suppose and I have somebody come to your apartment, pick you up and bring you to the date. And he said, uh, well, you know, I'm willing if you are. So my brother at that time happened to be uh, on spring break from Cornell. And I said to my brother, Lee, I said, Lee, you got a job on this thing now. You're going to go over to Cy Coleman's at 8 o'clock in the morning, get him out of bed, <laughs> get him a cup of coffee, and then put him in a cab and bring him over to the recording session, which he did. And Cy Coleman played on the we did four sessions, and Cy played on them, and he was brilliant. Uh, he never looked at one of these things in advance. He never practiced. He never read them in advance, sat down just like any studio guy, read them right off as good as Mike or, or anybody in this town has ever done any of the great pianists. So uh, I'm sorry that 
Sai has left us because he was really a great, great musician for those who didn't know him personally. He was brilliant, a brilliant pianist and a, and a great musician, and we had fun in high school together. Anyway, let's go back to California, back when I got here and went to Warner Brothers. Uh, and after that, I had to struggle a bit, um, trying to make ends meet, and discovered that there was a career in playing piano in bars and I had to do something to make a living. And so I got a job at the Garden of Allah. Uh, you old guys, old thoughts know where that is or where that was, right? And uh, for those of you who don't know about the Garden of Allah, it was a very special secretive hotel at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Crescent Heights where people like Humphrey Bogart and Errol Flynn and everybody hung out and uh, Robert Benchley. And... Um, it was a real Hollywood hangout, and I got a job playing piano there. And the piano at the uh, at the Garden of Allah was situated up the bar and kind of raised on a platform, and it was very little space. It was just about enough space for the piano and the player. And I played there, I don't remember, three, four, five months, and everything was lovely. I sit there and play for Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell, who'd come in after the shoots. And this was really, this was fun for a little kid from from New York City sitting there and playing for these people and uh, then one day I got the notice that I was being replaced and I said oh how come weren't you happy with my oh we're very happy with you Stu but we got another guy and he sings now at that point I never felt of myself a singer I still don't uh, and carry a tune most composers can or they're out of business and uh, I said well yeah, that's life and I, I went and to cut to cut to the chase after many other jobs and many months later almost a year later I think I went back to the Garden of Allah and there was nobody playing piano I said uh, what happened to the piano player he said well he decided to become a trio and there was no room up here for a trio so we had to get rid of him Do you want your job back and I said oh yeah I'll take it well I said who by the way who was that and his name was Paige Cavanaugh <laughs> and I said my god I can sing as good as that you know <laughs> I said, I should have competed with him. Well, anyway, part of life, part of life. Uh, while I'm in Hollywood at that time, we were down to about 1952, I got very ambitious now and decided I'd have a band. And I got an agent, or an agent got me actually, and talked me into putting together a seven-piece society band, uh, three saxes, a trumpet, and a rhythm section. And I wrote about 20 charts, as you say, uh, for this band, and we got a job at the Chi-Chi in Palm Springs, uh, run by a guy named Herman, uh, can't remember his last name, Herman, and um, we played down there, and basically, we were pretty successful, because I hired guy, I put guys in the band who all could read music so we could cut a show, and one of the shows we did was for a person named Lily St. Cyr, if any of you remember her? Oh, yes. Well, Lily, we moved the band back of the stage, and Lily was in front of us, and I spent about a whole week there looking at the backside of Lily St. Cyr. I never did get to see the front, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm told it was pretty good. Anyway, um, we played, and um, we weren't in the height of season, I would say. Like, we were hired for the last two weeks of August and two weeks of September, which in Palm Springs is not what you would call in season. And uh, But they were kind of trying us out. And Herman told me he's very happy, very happy with the band. And um, 
everything's great. And then after the second paycheck or third paycheck came along, I was told the band was done. And I said, I thought you were happy. And I figured, oh God, here go, here we go with the Garden of Allah again. You know, I love you, but you're bye-bye. And um, uh, we were bye-bye. And I said, who got the job? And they said, this band leader whose uh, uncle is the chef at the Chi-Chi. And I said, well, now I'm learning about show business and you've got to know somebody, right? So um, eventually, several weeks later, I tried to find out who actually was the band, and his name was Frankie Ortega, who I think you all know ended up with a quite a wonderful career as a uh, uh, West Coast, uh, you know, band playing bar mitzvahs, weddings, and anything else. And uh, so I lost to Paige Cavanaugh, I lost out to Frankie Ortega, not too bad. While I was rehearsing the band, I rehearsed down at the Union, in one of the union rooms, and uh, next door to me was another band, but this was a big band, 15 pieces, you know, really blowing some good stuff. And I had little, this little seven-piece society job. And I came outside and uh, went inside and listened to this band for a while. And uh, the guy who was leading the band saw me and um, kind of waved. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know him. And I went back to my band and continued rehearsing and then he came in and he said and introduced himself and says hi my name is Mark Gardner and he said uh, I've been listening to some of your stuff and he says I like your arranging he says it's uh, really uh, unusual he says you do some great stuff here he says it's a it's it, I haven't heard a lot of things like that so he said, I'd like you to do arrangements for my band well I'd do anything for money in those days I needed a job you know um, so I said oh fine just call me here's my number well he never called uh, never called. A year and a half later, I was in Japan, and I had spent nine months there, long enough to get pregnant, and um, <laughs> I was on my way, I was at Camp Sendai, uh, Camp Schimmelfennig in Sendai, Japan. I was a sergeant at that time in charge of conducting the band in whatever uh, occasions they needed it. And uh, the head of the uh, band unit at that time said, Stu, if you want to take it easy, I don't blame me. You're just waiting for your orders to go home. So, you know, no sense. And then he called me in about a day or two later, and he said, J I just got orders for you to be transferred to the Air Force Base. Uh, I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, it sounds like a, a good deal. He says, you're, I said, what am I going to do there? They, he said, I don't know, but you are. you were requested by Captain over there at the NCO, at the uh, officers club. I said, okay, packed my stuff, said goodbye to everybody. One of the people I said goodbye to was a wonderful percussionist named Emilio Radocchio, better known to you people as Emil Richards. And uh, we, we became very good friends over there. Anyway, um, I went over to this Air Force base there in Sendai, and uh, this gentleman, Captain, came out to see me and shook my hand and looked at me. He says, you don't remember me? And I said, well, not really. He says, my name's Mark Gardner. I said, oh, you mean back in, 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 in L.A.? at the? You, yeah, that's right. He says, well, I always said I was going to hire you to do some arrangements, so now I'm hiring you to do some arrangements. He says... There's a room around the back with a cot in it and a bathroom, and he says, that's your place, and all you got to do for, until they give you orders to go home is write arrangements every day for the band to play for the officers' club. And I said, hell, this is a good deal. And I did it.
I sat there. I couldn't, couldn't be a better deal in the world. I didn't have to report to anybody. All I did was get up in the morning, stand formation, and then go do whatever I wanted all day. Did arrangements. I had the piano in the officers club, even had a key to it so I could get to the piano when nobody was there. And, uh, I did this for about three weeks and my orders came through to go back to States. And, uh, I left and thanked Mark Gardner, came back to the States, and then found out through the grapevine that all these wonderful arrangements that I did for free for Mark Gardner in the United States Air Force, Mark Gardner was using for his band in California, of which he was playing like Frankie Ortega. I don't know, maybe some of you ever heard his name, Mark Gardner, but he did have a band here in the West Coast. And he was playing all these arrangements that I did for free in the Army. He took them all back with him. Nice guy. <laughs> never, never met him again or anything like that. All right, I know some of you out here are waiting for the two stories. There's a gentleman over there who actually came here and said, I came here to meet you because of the Holly Ridge Strings, of which uh, it's not often that uh, uh, people are fans of that particular uh uh, things that I did, the series of albums that I did. Oh, there are, I have a lot of fans, but it isn't often these kind of gatherings that people are here to hear me talk about the Hollywood Strings. I will get to that, okay? Bear with me. But first I have to tell the story because everybody wants to hear that even if they've heard it before about Blue Moon. Uh, Blue Moon. I was an A&R man. My career had progressed in many directions. I Went this way, that way, as you can tell so far. I, you name it, and I say, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do anything as long as it's in the music business. And uh, I became an A&R man at Cold Picks Records, and uh, I was not too successful for about five or six months. In fact, uh, I was worried that I was going to probably lose my job. I made a lot of nice records. I recorded some great people, Nina Simone, James Darren, the Chad Mitchell Trio, but nothing was a hit. And if you don't make hits, companies aren't too happy. Um, a group called the Marcells had been sending me uh, demos, little cassette demos. Uh, no, not cassette demos. Regular, the other kind of demos, <laughs> records. This was 60, 61, 62. And um, I had said, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't spend the money to bring you from Pittsburgh all the way to New York City here. Uh, so... Um, I'm sorry. And I put them off, 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 off until finally one day I just said out of desperation, I said, you know what? If you guys ever get the money together to come to New York City, you come and I'll try to, and I'll, I'll record you. And I figured, well, that's the last I'll hear of them. And, uh, then I was assigned to record the Skyliners after their big hit, since I don't have you. And they signed with Cold Picks and Cold Picks gave them a lot of money, which for, Columbia Pictures was an unusual thing. They don't give out money if they could help it. And um, uh, I started to record the Skyliners. I was told by my boss, I don't want you doing anything else except the Skyliners. I said, okay. Uh, it was like a f late January or a February, and New York City had one of the great blizzards of the time. And uh, I looked out my window on Fifth Avenue, and the buses, you know, like they were stranded halfway in the street, halfway there. Cars weren't, couldn't park. It was shut down. Everything was shut down in New York. And I'm looking out the window, and my secretary buzzes me and says, uh, Stu, yeah, there's somebody here to see you. And I said, um, who's that? She said, you won't believe this, the Marcells. 
I said, the Marcells are here? She says, yes, they trudged in the snow on foot from the Lincoln Tunnel, from the bus stop at the Lincoln Tunnel, all the way up here to Fifth Avenue in the snow, <laughs> in the blizzard. And I walked out, and there are these five bedraggled kids with their manager, who was a bartender in, um, in Pittsburgh, and they're standing there, and they're saying, we're here, record us. <laughs> So this was kind of like in the afternoon, and, and I, I said to myself, I've got to hide this group because if my boss sees this group here, he's going to kill me because I'm not supposed to be doing anything. And so I kind of conned them, and I figured, well, I've I got to make them feel comfortable. So I called up uh, a pianist arranger who uh, I occasionally use uh, at times. Um, Dory helped me. Uh, Bert Keys. Bert Keys. And... Uh, uh, Bert came over and I said, Bert, you gotta work with the kids, rehearse them, see what they've got because I can't, I can't be seen with them. So we had a rehearsal room and Bert took them in there and he spent the day and finally my boss went home about 637 and I went in there and we went through some stuff and everything they sang was somebody else's, you know, hit from the fifth, doo-wop hit from the fifties. And I said, hey guys, we gotta get some material. So I called over to Donnie Kirshner's place and, and, uh, I said to Emil Laviola, who was the promotion guy there, I said, what do you got? Can you get something over to me in the morning for this group? And he came over and he played me some Man and Wild and Goffin and stuff tunes. And I said, um, I picked one of those tunes and then I picked a standard and something else and I had three things and, the the group came back for everything, and fortunately, my boss wasn't around. And we worked, and we worked on some stuff, and uh, we got. And they, they weren't bad, you know. They were pretty good. They were good kids. They listened. They tried hard. And uh, that night, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I woke my wife up, and I said to her, "You know what? I, I can't send them home. I haven't the conscience to do it." I said, "I'm going to pay for this date myself." And I'm going to record them. And if, you know, if I'm out, I'm out. It was a, the whole date cost $850 with the studio, uh, four musicians and I wasn't about to pay them. Uh, and, uh, uh, I said, I got to do it. I have to do it. And so the following day we rehearsed again. I booked RCA for nine o'clock at night when I figured there wouldn't be anybody around from the record company. Uh, that would be it. Now we had three tunes in those days for you who were and have been in the record business. Three tunes was a catastrophe. If you went in for a three hour date, you did four. The record company wanted two releases. So I needed a fourth tune. So, uh, I said, okay, guys, sing some of those old things you were singing. So they sang some stuff. And then this one piece came out where the bass guy went, bumba da bumba, bumba da bumba, ding da ding da ding da ding da ding da ding ding blue. He didn't do Blue Moon because that wasn't there yet. And I said, that I like. <laughs> All right, what else do we got? So they sang some of the harmony, and the harmonies were the typical, I love cantor harmonies, you know, C-A-D-G, C-A-D-G. And I said, well, let me think, what song goes with that? And I said, oh, Heart and Soul. Does anybody know Heart and Soul? Nope, nobody knows Heart and Soul. Okay, what else goes that way? Uh, Blue Moon, does anybody know Blue Moon? And the lead singer says, hey, I know it. I said, okay, sing it. And he sang Blue Moon and he sang it right. I said, hey, great. So now let's, you do that. Now you sing Blue Moon. You do those changes. And when we get to the end of the eight, you go back, do those changes again. And then we'll do the, uh, and needless to say, we just worked it out. It was a composite job between the group and myself and Bert and, and that. And, um, 
We got to the release, the bridge, the channel, the middle, and the kids singing. And then I suddenly saw you there. I said, oh, 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 hold it a minute. That's not the way it goes. It modulates. So I sang it for him. Oh, okay. And then he went and he sang it exactly the same way. And I said, no, no, Bert, play it for him. One noted and Bert played it. Oh, oh, I got it. And he sang it the same wrong way again. And I said, okay, sing it any way you want. I don't care. Fine, let's go, guy. Yeah. And we kept going. And I said, I don't care because this is the fourth side. I got three sides I kind of like that are, you know, the possibilities. Okay, nine o'clock that night. By God, we go into RCA Victor. We record the first three songs. It is now about 12 minutes of midnight. Needless to say, I had no intention of going overtime. It was my nickel. 12 minutes of midnight, I said, okay, now let's do the last tune. Okay, so Bert says to the guys, okay, we're doing Blue Moon and... I forgot what key they did it in. I don't remember. Whatever. Blue Moon and C. And the guy, okay, we got you, Bert. Okay, fine. And I said, ready, guys? Yeah, go. Now, by now, it's about nine minutes of 12. They go through. They do a take. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. I mean, now it's like four minutes of midnight. So the engineer says to me, what do you want to do? I said, oh, we'll do one more. Okay, so we do one more. They never get through it. It breaks up every time. They can't get... Midnight goes, goodbye, everybody. And we paid the musicians cash, if I recall. We gave them cash at the door. And I said, guys, if anything ever happens, I'll put in a contract. Meanwhile, forget it. And we gave them cash, and that was it. And then... Remember, this is mono and stereo was just coming in stereo tape. So we made it, we made the date basically in mono and there was a stereo backup just in case, a two track. And so we start listening to this. It's about quarter after 12 and we get to the blue moon and I said, boy, you know, that thing is really, you know, God, it grows on you. It's just like infectious. About that time into the studio comes a guy named Danny. Now, Danny had gotten a job at Cold Picks as a promotion man about two days prior to my recording Blue Moon. And he kept egging my secretary, what's Stu doing? Was he in a studio with a group? I want to go down. I want to get excited about my job. He was one of these typical promotion guys, you know, like he was so edgy and so on. You know, I got to go, 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 go. So she wouldn't tell him because she knew it wasn't an official Cold Picks date. But somehow he found out somehow and he came down to the studio a little after midnight and he heard blue moon playing and he said oh my god that is the greatest record i've ever heard and i looked at i said who are you <laughs> you know he said, oh i'm danny winchell i'm your new new promotion man i said oh fine and uh finally i listened to the stuff i decided nothing needed to be remixed or anything on the stereo and i said good night guys i'll get in touch with you and tell you what to do with these things because i may just have you send them to my home and i'll pay you the bill rca was very nice they said don't worry about it Stu. we trust you and uh i went home we went to sleep next morning i come into the office a little after nine o'clock in the morning my boss says i want to see you this minute this instant what's the matter paul he says, come in here, and he closes the door, and he says, what is this I'm hearing? He says, I hear that we have a hit record called Blue Moon, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I, you know, I tried to play it as dumb as I could, and he said, no, I understand we have a hit record. We've got people calling for order records. He says, what is this? Who the hell are the Marcells? 
And I said, oh boy, my, you know, I'm dead, I'm dead. Well, what happened, now to backtrack, is this Danny Winchell conned the engineer into making him a disc, took the disc to Murray Kaufman, for those of you who know Murray the K, Murray the K, one of the great all-time crooked disc jockeys in the world, but one of the greatest. <laughs> They're all crooked. Anyway, Murray the K was on from, I don't know, midnight or 1 o'clock till 6 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he got to Murray. He knew Murray for some reason. And he said to Murray, you got to hear this record. It's hot off the press. Well, that was honest. That was all hot off the press. Yeah, you betcha. And Murray listened to it. And uh, he said, my God, I just love this thing. Well, Murray played it every half hour from 1 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock in the morning. Every half hour he played the record. And every time he went to a news break, he played the opening bomb, 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 bomb as part of his thing to the news break. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, distributors had heard that there was this new record by the Marcells out, and they all ordered it. We had an order for 10,000 records by 10 o'clock in the morning after I recorded it at 9 o'clock to follow, to midnight the following, <laughs> the previous evening. Uh, well, we were, in, needless to say, in a bit of trouble because we didn't have any product. We didn't have anything. The only thing we did have was a contract with the Marcells, which I was fortunate enough to be smart enough to get them to sign the standard <laughs> contract. So we did have their contract with them. And uh, from that point on, Blue Moon, the Marcells, became one of the biggest hits worldwide that had happened in a long, long time, probably since Presley's Jailhouse Rock or, or one of those. It was the biggest hit. Now, obviously, it probably would have sold several million more than it did, but we couldn't get the product out in time because you just don't have a, a pressing plant shut down to do your product. They have, you know, levels of, well, you're next, you're next, you're next. So it took a while to get the product out, and of course, that cost us a lot of sales. But anyway, that's the story of Blue Moon, one of the great accidents in the world <laughs> that uh, paid off and uh, made my career in the record business, which, uh, thank God, uh, flourished very well for a long time. Uh, anything anybody would like to ask more about the Blue Moon incident? No? Yes. Oh, God, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. That is Ray there, right? Yeah, okay. The real Ray Charles. Uh, the other Ray Charles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, what happened was that um, when the record became a big hit, uh, the uh, publisher of uh, Blue Moon, uh, who I was friendly with and who knew me, called me up and came over to the office and he said, you know, Stu, we may have a small problem. I said, what's that? He says, well, Richard Rogers isn't too happy about the uh, arrangement of this and the use of uh, uh, how this uh, tune has been butchered by not singing the right notes in the bridge, you know. Uh, and if any of you knew Richard Rogers, uh, he was a very particular man. If you changed a bass note in any one of his uh, arrangements, he would have a fit. Uh, and uh, I said, well, what are we going to do? He says, well, I don't know. He says he wants to put an injunction and stop the record. I said, are you kidding? You can't stop this record. It's a monster. He said, well, I'm going to stall him as long as I can. And he did. He stalled. He stalled Richard and then and then and finally when the thing became like number one all over the world, I never heard anything again from Richard. <laughs> but the publisher, like oh six, seven months later, I don't remember exactly, came in to show me some material. It was Robin's music, uh, which I think was Robin's Feist and Miller then, yeah. Uh 
he came in to show me some material, and I said, by the way, whatever happened with Richard? He said, oh, he dropped the whole thing, and he says, fact, I tell you the truth, I met some people who said they were at a cocktail party, and they asked Richard about the blue moon, and I said, what do you think? And he said, he said, loosely quoted, Richard said, God, it's great to have Rogers and Hart back at the top of the charts. And he, and somebody said, well, I thought you didn't like the record. He says, oh, I hate the record, but as long as they spell my name right on the check, I don't care. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me about that, Ray. Uh, any of you guys remember a fellow named Nick Harris, an arranger in this town? He just passed away a little while ago. Uh, back in, let's go back to 52 again. Uh, I was doing some arrangements for a vocal group, uh, and, uh, I met this arranger named Nick Harris, and this is 1952. And we worked together on a few projects, including a, a, um, a, some kind of a, uh, special thing with Georgie Jessel and everything else. And, um, uh, that's the last I saw in Nick Harris. It was 1952, I would think. And uh, about five years ago, yeah, I guess about five, six years ago, uh, my daughter had a dog <laughs> named Jasper who ran away all the time. And because Jasper ran away and she lived in the valley but worked in Beverly Hills, the dog had the tag of our phone number. So every time the dog ran away, we'd have to go pick it up because they had our phone number. One day I walked in the house and Dory says to me, guess what, Jasper ran away again. Uh, she says, but somebody found her and she's okay, uh, so can you go pick her up? And I said, fine. She says, here's the address and the man's name is Nick Harris. And I said, Nick Harris, why does that, you know, ring a bell or something? And finally, it, I said, that couldn't be the same guy that I knew in 1952 out here in California. Well, anyway... I drove to the place out in uh, Van Nuys, I think, or Sherman Oaks, actually, and uh, uh, went there, drove down the driveway, and standing there is Nick Harris, and he says, hi, Stu, remember me? Because <laughs> she had said, and I said, my God, it is Nick Harris? And on the idea of uh, strange things can happen in the world, can you believe that actually like almost 50 Years later, my dog, or my daughter's dog, would get lost on the driveway of a guy I doored arrangements with in 1952. Kind of odd. He was a very nice man, Nick Harris. Actually, you may know he did work for Dave Rose. He did a lot of orchestration for Dave when Dave did those TV shows, Nick Harris. Anyway, uh, there was um, other things I've done. Oh, let's get to Holly Ridge Strings. Holly Ridge Strings. Uh, after... Several hits at Cold Picks. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some arguments with Cold Picks and uh, ended up at Capitol Records uh, through the courtesy of Royal Gilmore, a lovely gentleman. And uh, I sat there collecting checks from Cold Picks and working at Capitol Records. It was a lovely, lovely thing. And um, I record, well, you know what? I'll do a two-part story here. I record, the last, the first thing I did when I got to Capitol was do Voyle Gilmore a favor. He had a group called the Four Preps. And um, they had two sessions due them before their contract expired. And um, they had had a big hit in 1958. And this was 63 now or 64. And they hadn't had anything since. And Voyle was kind of fed up with them and wanted to 
drop him, but he needed to uh, do this session. So he asked me if I would be nice enough to uh, do the session for him because he was a little busy with people like, you know, Sinatra and Dean Martin and Peggy Lee and other other such wonderful people. And I said, sure. And I did this uh, session uh, with the four preps. And the uh, song that we did was a thing called A Letter to the Beatles, which was written by Bruce Belland and, and this other gentleman. And the uh, record was an instant hit. And uh, they hadn't had a hit since 1958. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the Beatles lawyer, Lee Eastman, uh, decided that this was, song was detrimental to the Beatles' image. And he asked for it to be Capitol to remove it from the airplay and from the shelves. And Capitol had a choice. They could remove the record or they could lose the Beatles. So you tell me which they did. <laughs> they pulled the record. And, and the record at that time when they pulled it was like 65 with a bullet on the charts after about three weeks. So it was, it was definitely going to be a top 10 record. And they pulled the record and that was it. The other gentleman who wrote the song was a guy named Glenn Lawson. And that was 1964. And uh, I never saw Glenn Lawson again. And uh, I watched a few of the shows that he did, like to Takes a Thief, or to Catch, yeah, Takes a Thief, and uh, um, McLeod. And then in 1973, uh, I can honestly say it was a low point in my life. Things weren't going that good. I was doing some commercials and some really, really bad movies. And, and uh, I was actually contemplating moving to Australia and seeing if I could start and get a job there as a film composer. And the phone rings and uh, this voice says to me, are you Stu Phillips? Yes. Are you the Stu Phillips that was at Capitol Records in 1964? I said, yes, it is. She says, oh, one moment, Glenn Lawson wants to speak to you. And Glenn gets on the phone like he had spoken to me the day before. Hi, Stu, Glenn here. Now, let's back up a minute. When I was producing that record for Glenn, I was remixing it. Now, remember, in 64, remixing meant four-track, three-track. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, you know. It was like... And Glenn came into the studio while I was remixing, and he said, do you mind if I listen? And I said, no, not at all. And... um Glenn sat down and then started to make suggestions. Can we get more drums? I don't hear enough of the second tenor. I remember I'm talking three track here. I mean, how much control do I have? And maybe if you could EQ, as I finally got fed up with him, I said, Glenn, do me a favor. Would you please get up and leave? And he said, oh, okay, okay, I'll leave. You know, and he went out the door. And that was the last I left Glenn Larson. Then he, Larson, then he calls me. 73, like, buddy, 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 hi, Stu, yeah, hey, listen, I got a pilot that I'm going to do. Would you like to do the music? And I figured, this has got to be the biggest con I've ever heard in my life. Somebody is putting me on. I kicked this guy out of my studio, and he's calling me. Well, by God, he was serious. I went down there, and the pilot was called a $6 million man. And uh, his version, his particular uh, there were many pilots on that. Yo Malay did one. But the one that Glenn did is the one that sold the series. And that was my start with 14 years of Glenn Lawson. Uh, so it's kind of strange how things work in this world. Uh, you can never count anybody out or <laughs> you can never think that somebody's your enemy or anybody's your friend. <laughs> your friend is, becomes your enemy. Your enemy becomes your friend and you never know. I once, I asked Glenn after a while, how come he decided to call me. I mean, out of nowhere, you just pick up a phone and call somebody you haven't seen in nine years without fond memories, you know. And uh, he said, well, tell you the truth, 
they gave me this assignment, and they gave me a list, and Harry Garfield gave me a list of composers that I could use, and he says, I didn't like any of them. Now, remember, this man, when he did It Takes a Thief, was had occasion, Dave Grusin had written the theme, and Dave was doing quite a few episodes of that. So, I mean, this man was exposed to Dave Grusin and didn't like him as a composer. So, no, 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 not, no explaining to some people's taste. Anyway, he said, they gave me this long list of names, and I said, I don't like any of these people. So then he went down and he talked to a music editor. And now this music editor that he talked to happened to be my music editor when I did a picture called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, a 20th Century Fox. And he said to Glenn, gee, I just worked with a guy named Stu Phillips who did this picture, and he was just wonderful on the picture. He had all this different kind of music, and he had to rehearse the singing. He had to teach him how to lip sync. He had to play instruments. He said, really, he was very good. And Glenn said to him, Stu Phillips, you mean the guy was in the record business? And he says, yeah, yeah, the same guy, yeah. So that's when he went back and he said to his secretary, find me Stu Phillips. And that's how basically I got the job to a music editor I had worked for on, on Dolls. Anyway, after I did the record with uh, uh, the four preps, um, the Beatles <coughs> came out with their first major <coughs> big hit album. And uh, I sat there in my office one day and I'm saying to myself, God, these guys really write. They're good. And I said, they've actually got themes. And I said, I wonder what it would be like to do some kind of like Dave Rose, Morton Gould, which are my idols, arrangements of the Beatles songs. And um, so I called in a, uh, one of the department heads. His name was Carl Engerman. And I said to Carl, uh, I got an idea about doing the Beatles for people who don't like the Beatles, you know, with strings and things. And he said... Uh, let me toss it, uh, let me toss it around at the next meeting. An hour later, he comes back and I said, you had a meeting this fast? He says, no, I went into Voyle because this idea really, really touched me. And he said, Voyle said, I love it. Let's do it. And he said, now how fast can you get it done? You know, so I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And we went and <clears throat> picked out some tunes. And then I thought to myself, let me think, if I just do, if I just do like, Dave used to do, or 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 or, or uh, Al Goodman. Remember that name, Al Good. He never wrote anything, did he, guys? He had Rangers, didn't he? He had a staff, did all that stuff. Yeah, okay. But I, you know, I knew the name when I was a kid. Anyway, uh, I said to myself, why don't I take the rhythm section that the Beatles do, all this hard driving stuff, lay that down, and then just instead of a group singing, just put the orchestra on top of it, but keep that rock and roll driving beat instead of going into that Muzak light little back, you know, uh, stuff. So that's how I did the first album, plus the fact that I went into a into some kind of orbit with Echo, uh, uh, where I did some tape delays through the famous Capitol Chambers and all kinds of things. We experimented, and I, what I made was either god-awful or good. And turned out it was good. People liked it. People loved that sound. I don't know why. Maybe it was because of Phil Spector and his wall of sound. It was, uh, it was over your, on, over the top. Anyway, they loved it. Capital loved it. The album went to, I don't know, number four in the place. They couldn't wait for me to go back in. I did four seasons. I did Beach Boys. Uh, I went bad. They did Beatles 2. And, uh, did, ended up doing 13 albums in about, well, actually, no, I did those three in the 70s. So I did about 10 albums in the course of like two years uh, for uh, having to do with the Holly Rich Strings.
And it got so big at that time that William Morris called up <clears throat> and said, we'd like to try to do something where the Hollywood Strings is, goes on tour and plays with, you know, uh, pop orchestras, symphonic orchestras. So I met with William Morris Agency <clears throat> and thought, wow, now I'm really going to have a different career. I never really even thought of doing this. So far, I've been a composer for television. I've been a composer for film, been an A&R man. I've been a cocktail pianist. I've been a singer in a vocal group. I said, wow, this is going to be different. I'm now going to go out on the road with an orchestra. Well, William Morris and Capitol couldn't get together because neither one of them wanted to put the front, front money up, and they all decided that I should put the front money up. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> either foolishly or not, I'll never know because I might have... it might have been a major thing or it might not have. I said no. I wasn't about to do it. It was bad enough they were taking money from me for the course of the dates because the Hollywood Strings was a house orchestra. That name belonged to the Capitol Records, not me. And um, so I said no. I wasn't about to promote their name on my money. Uh, if it was Stu Phillips and his orchestra, great, yes. So I'll never know. We'll never know what happened on that particular thing, but that was their decision. Um, uh, then I got into a contractual spat with Capitol Records. Um, and my attorney and they were playing phone tag. And meanwhile, they wanted more Hollywood strings. So they proceeded. They couldn't wait for me. And since I didn't have any kind of exclusive agreement with them at that point, uh, they hired two other arrangers who did three albums. And um, that was it, period, end of story. Uh, except that in 1971, when things were a little slow, I, uh, Boyle Gilmore wasn't there anymore, but Dave Cavanaugh was. I called Dave up. I said, hey, Dave, I haven't heard any new Hollywood strings. You want to resurrect them and I'll do some new stuff? And he said, okay. Very simple. And I went down there and I did a new Beatles album, only we couldn't call it Beatles because of, at that time, they were the greatest thing in the whole world. By 1971, they'd already broken up. But uh, we couldn't use the way Beatles, so we called it John, George, Paul, and Ringo. And that we could do. They were four proper names, you know, John, Paul, George, George and Ringo. And I did another Beatles um, uh, album. And then I did a um, uh, Hits of the 70s album. And that was the last of that I did with the Hollywood Strings. I had done a Stu Phillips and his orchestra albums uh, somewhere in 65. Uh, and that was such a big flop that I never did another one for him. But it's one of, it's a lot of people's favorite album. It's, it was, uh, it was more Jackie Gleason than it was, um, what I was doing with Holly Ridge. It was, uh, it was all sex oriented. I mean, everything was meant to, uh, meant to give you the feeling that a, a, a sexual encounter was taking place. Not as polite as I can put it. And, uh, <laughs> My favorite fan of that whole album, who I have given three albums to and two CDs to, is Nancy Sinatra, who absolutely fell in love with that and had her secretary constantly calling me and saying, Stu, she needs another copy. She wore out this one. And uh, anyway, uh, it, it's one of my favorite albums, but unfortunately, uh, uh, it has a very small uh, place. Uh, what other stories would be of interest? Um, Actually, the first job I mentioned that I had been a copyist on the Milton Berle show. 
Uh, how does somebody who's, uh, I guess at that time I was 19 years old or 18 or something, uh, how does one get that job? Well, Sammy Fain again. Yay, Sammy. Uh, Sammy had once again called down and talked to an arranger down there at the show and said, can you do my, I don't know what he called me, his nephew or his something or other. We weren't really related, but he was related to my grandmother as a 10th cousin or something. And uh, they put my name on the copyist list. How about that? And then uh, it was Young Kippur, Young Kippur, and uh, we're preparing to sit down. It was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and the phone rings. And um, I pick it up. My father picks it up, actually, and says, yes. And she says, this is for you. And I figured, for me? Who knows? You know, who calls me? Anyway, it was the Milton Berle Show, copyist office, asking if I was available to copy from 7 o'clock that evening till 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning through the night. Uh, they needed a, a copyist. And I looked at my father. I said, my God, I, I, I can't go. It's, you know, it's Young Kippur. He said, of course you can go. He says, my God, you realize how many more Young Kippers you're going to have the rest of your life? He says, you, he says, for God's sakes, go. You know, and, and we were not uh, an orthodox or very ultra-religious uh, Jewish family. We just respected the holidays, all three of them or four, you know. Uh, and I said, okay, Dad, and I went. And I worked all night long, and I got paid this humongous check with overtime and double time and night time and all the stuff that goes with it. And uh, that was my first official job of getting paid as a working musician. So um, it's nice to have a father like that. That's that uh, understanding, which he generally was, as you can tell so far. So far, he's paid for my first major LP that I made. He paid for, and he said to me, "God bless you. Go, go work. <laughs> you know, don't worry about it." Um, people, I love talking to you. I thank you. If I. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.